Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Adam Hennig to discuss his latest book, Watergate's Forgotten Hero, Frank Wills, Night Watchman, which was published earlier this year by McFarland and Company. Adam's book focuses on someone you may well not have heard of, but who played a critical role in breaking open the Watergate scandal, a 24-year-old security guard by the name of Frank Wills. The only African-American identified with the Watergate scandal, Wills enjoyed a brief moment in the limelight, but was unable to cope with his newfound fame. A fascinating and cautionary tale about the intersections of race, fame, and public scandal. Adam is an experienced writer and public speaker, and his other books include Alex Haley's Roots, published in 2014, and Baseball Under Siege, published in 2016. Hi, Adam. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. No, it's, it's great to have you on. Um, easy question just to, to start off with. Who was Frank Wills? Frank Wills was, was born in 1948 in Savannah, Georgia. Um, when he was about five, he moved to North Augusta, South Carolina. He was the product of a, um, of a single mother uh, who worked as a maid. Frank and his mom moved often. They didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they lived with relatives. His, his mom had uh, limited education, but she was a good, caring mother. She cared for Frank. Um, and Frank, unfortunately, didn't have a lot of people in his life to, to set him on, a, on, a, on the right path. And so he, he never finished high school. He wound up in a, in a nighttime security job that led him to Washington, D.C., where he worked as a private security guard. And he was hired by a firm that was in charge of guarding the Watergate office building. And that's where the connection is with Frank Wills and the infamous Watergate scandal. And of course, there's no reason for us to bury the lead on on this interview. So what exactly happens on the morning of of June 17th, 1972 at the Watergate? and, And what is Frank Wills' involvement? His shift began at about midnight and he had only been working there for about six weeks and had only been working in the private security industry for a little more than a year. He didn't have any sort of formal uh, training. He wasn't in the military. He wasn't involved in law enforcement. But for whatever reason, he had a knack for being a security guard. He was very observant. And on this particular morning, as he was doing his rounds, he had already been alerted that there had been some break-ins in the Watergate. And the reason why it's important is that on the sixth floor is the office of the Democratic National Committee. So this was a presidential election year. And the nominee for the Democrats was George McGovern. And he was running against the incumbent, Richard Nixon. Wills begins his, um, his rounds. And his rounds basically consist of checking the doors uh, to see if everything is locked, if there's anything amiss. Um, and of course, there shouldn't be anyone in the building at this time. So Wills goes down to the basement. And this is a, oh, I think it's a seven or eight story office building. So it's quite large. And it's also connected to a hotel um, and a residence. So it's a fairly large complex. 
Anyway, so he goes down to the basement where the parking garage is and is, is checking the doors. And he, he, he checks the first one. It's fine. Then he checks the second one and he notices it's unlocked. And so he checks the latch and he notices that there was tape that was attached to it and it was preventing it from being locked. And so he takes off the tape and then he looks into the latch and he sees it was stuffed with cotton and paper. Now, this is certainly not common, but it also wasn't highly unusual. Oftentimes, the maintenance workers would purposely do something like this. So they didn't have to take out their keys, find the right one, open the door, you know, open and close or, uh, you know, unlock it, lock it. So, you know, it, it was known that, that, that some of the workers in the building would do this. So anyway, so Wills doesn't think anything of it, clears it out. He does make a note about it on the security log and he continues doing his rounds and he notices there's another door in the basement that's also been unlocked. This one, I don't think had anything stuffed in it, but nevertheless, he, he secures it and he goes about his rounds and he checks the remaining floors in the building. Now, Wills gives conflicting accounts what happens next. He says that he, because what he's supposed to be doing is that after he finishes his rounds, he records it and then he does it all over again. But Wills takes a big break. He runs into an intern at the, uh, the DNC who was still in the office and he's not supposed to be. And they start chatting and he's going to go grab a midnight snack across the street at the Howard Johnson hotel, or I should say uh, lodge and restaurant. And so Wills basically locks up the building, um, leaves it unprotected and, and go grabs a bite to eat with this, this intern. And, and then when he comes back, you know, he has his milkshake, he has his hamburger and he decides this is probably now like an hour or so later, I should probably go do another round. And so he does. Except this time when he goes back down to the basement and he checks the very door that had tape around it and that he had removed, he finds that the tape has been reapplied. And it is at that moment Frank Wills realizes he's not the only person in the building. And so he calls the police and the rest is history. So Wills is really the guy that sets the the ball in motion in terms of the Watergate scandal. Um, so he's obviously this key figure in post-war American history, but you describe him in, in, in your book as a, as a forgotten hero. For me, as an example, I'm someone who teaches and, and writes on post-World War II American history. I like to think I have some level of, of knowledge about that subject, and, and it wasn't a name that, that I was familiar with at all. So how did how did you first hear about Frank Wills? You know, like you, I wasn't familiar with Frank Wills, but I came across his name when I was doing research on my first book about Alex Haley. And in that book, I focus on what happens to Haley after Roots comes out, because, of course, he reaches the highest pinnacle of success for an author. In fact, I, I would argue no one has probably reached that height other than maybe J.K. Rowling. I mean, it's, it was just incredible for a very short period. And once he was done with Roots, Haley had a hard time looking for another 
subject to write about. And so he would do some, he would write forwards for other authors. He would write magazine articles. And one of the subjects that he was kicking around was Frank Wills. He had read a recent story about him in Jet Magazine. And he felt that, you know, he wanted to to find out what really happened on that night uh, that I just described. And then also how he was treated afterwards, which I spend a lot of time in my book. Because Frank Wills, as a, a young Black male in America who was from the South, a product of a single mother who worked as a maid, a high school dropout, a father before the time he was 18 years old, Frank Will's life was going nowhere. And even after his 15 minutes of fame, after being hailed an American hero for saving democracy, he was really treated poorly. And in many respects, he was kicked to the curb. And so Haley wanted to highlight this. And so I had came across an article in a newspaper that talked about how he was meeting with Frank Wills. He was going to interview him and they were going to collaborate together on a book very similar to the autobiography of Malcolm X. He wanted to do the autobiography of Frank Wills, very similar uh, format. Um, Unfortunately, it it didn't work out. Haley had a reputation for starting projects and not finishing them. And the reality was he didn't find Frank's story as, as interesting as it, it could be for a book. It just, there just wasn't enough drama, as he put it. And the reason why I know that is I was able to track down the recording, the audio recording of the interview he had with Frank Wills, which was probably one of the most valuable pieces of archival research I was able to uncover. So you find this really fascinating Haley archival material, and then there's some other great archival material that you, you're able to find. Um, so can you say a little bit about other archival uh, collections that, that you use to, to build out your, your knowledge of Will's well, actually, let me let me tell you the story about how I found the Alex Haley Frank Wills interview. Because from the moment I started the project, I was trying to locate them, and I and I just couldn't. I was checking eBay, I was checking auction sites, I was checking, um, of course, the Alex Haley papers, you know, in, in Tennessee um, and at the Schomburg in New York, and there was nothing there. And and I was thinking, oh, maybe it's under a different name, uh, maybe it's in the miscellaneous files. And there was just nothing. And I knew I had to find them. And I was hoping, see, the problem was when Alex Haley died in 1992, he died in debt. And so his estate was sold off. And that's why I was checking the auction sites because many of the most valuable materials of his estate was, was auctioned and it was, um, and it was bought, you know, by, by private collectors, uh, but also by some, um, public institutions like the Schomburg and, and, and like the University of Tennessee. And some wealth, wealthy benefactors also had um, donated them. For whatever reason, I I was doing a Google search, and this was like two years into my research, and I just happened, and I kept looking. I mean, I just never gave up. And I and I came across something that looked promising. And, and sure enough, it was 
um, in Ohio of all places, neither Wills nor Haley have any connection to Ohio. So this is the Ohio History Center. And they have a, a African-American library within the center. And Alex Haley had uh, papers there, unbeknownst to me. You know, I, had, I was not aware of it. And I was going through it and I was, I was intrigued. And then, of course, I see Frank Wills' name and I knew exactly what they were. And the recordings were on cassette tape. So I had to pay to have them digitized, which, which was fine. And they sent it to me. And I just remember listening and it provided so much material. It first of all put, it was the longest interview Frank Wills that I am aware of ever had with anyone. Because remember, he's interviewing for a book. This isn't like for a radio show. Um, it's not for a magazine article. This is for a book. So they sat down, I mean, for almost two hours and they, and they only had a few interviews, but, and only one of them was, was, um, at least available in this recording, but it was, there was so much material. I was able to connect the dots in terms of understanding how Frank Wills, you know, grew up, understanding why he was frustrated, why so many people let him down. And, and Haley, Haley was such a good interviewer. You know, he's the guy who started the Playboy interview back in 1960. The first interview was Miles Davis, and it all started with, with Alex Haley. He's the one who, who started that, that ongoing monthly popular section in Playboy magazine, the, the interview. Um, so so he, he, was, he was a natural, and, and he was able to get a lot out of Frank Wills, which says a lot because Frank Wills is not a, is not a talker. He, he's an introvert. And, um, and that was part of the problem. He wasn't designed, his, his makeup wasn't to be famous. I mean, it just didn't suit his personality, um, which is ironic because he, he wanted to receive his dues. It was kind of this, this contradiction in his life. You know, he, he wanted to be recognized, but he also wanted to be left alone. And then you, you also, um, you mentioned, doing some interviews with, with members of, of Wilson's family, uh, former girlfriend, childhood friends. Um, I wonder if there was particular aspects of those interviews that, that gave you a, a unique perspective um, or that helped to, to supplement or, or maybe even complicate um, the material that you had through the Haley tapes. Yeah, you know, interviews are, are difficult. They're difficult because people's memories are not always 100% accurate. And so interviews can really complement the research material. It can also contradict the, the research material. And so it's important if you're an author to do both because if the person who you're interviewing affirms the, the material, then, then you, know, you know you're going in the right direction. But I was able to interview his former girlfriend and also the mother of uh, his daughter, um, I interviewed his cousin. I interviewed uh, friends of his, neighbors. I interviewed the last person who he was with, the college intern on the night of the break-in. Um, and the person that I interviewed that I found to be not so much the most interesting, but the most unexpected uh, came from those Alex Haley interview tapes. What I didn't know about Frank Wills, I didn't know much about his mom, Marjorie, who I, um, who, as I mentioned, she worked as a maid. She was a single mother. Frank never knew his dad. 
Um, Frank was born in Savannah, Georgia, which, although a more progressive place racially, politically, in terms of in comparison to other parts of Georgia, it was still the South. And we're talking about the 1940s and 1950s where everything was segregated. And so, um, you know, he, he, he grew up in, in, in an apartment that, or at least for the first few years, where, I mean, I don't even know if they had indoor plumbing. I don't know if they had electricity because it wasn't unusual at that point in time. If you were black and living in certain neighborhoods, um, you had um, incredible limitations. And so the mom, Marjorie, she worked as a maid and she worked for a, uh, a number of families. But one of the families that she worked with was a, uh, a Jewish family. And they were um, uh, they owned a small business and it was a shoe store. And during the Alex Haley interview, he mentions this family and then he mentions their last name. And I couldn't capture it right away. I must have listened to it a dozen times. And I couldn't figure out the exact spelling. So I tried different variations. And I had already contacted um, researchers down in Savannah to get um, to see if they could track down his birth certificate, to see if they could uh, look up uh, telephone directories on my behalf. And I wanted to see if they can get find this family. And sure enough, <laughs> they did. The 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 seven year old son at that time when um, uh, Frank's mom was working there is now close to eighty, and he's a he's a doctor and he's living in of all places Ohio. <laughs> um, and I spoke to him, and he had no idea that as he knew Frankie, not Frank, but he knew him as Frankie was this famous figure in American history. He had no idea. He had no idea what had happened to him. And they were friends for a few years. You know, he would come over, Frank would come over with his mom and um, Frank and Lee, which is the the son's name, who's now a doctor or retired doctor. um, They would play together, you know, and, um, Apparently, because Jews had also experienced hostility because of of their religion, I I talk about this in the book, there was a certain kinship between African-Americans and Jews, particularly um, like in the South, where where they both felt ostracism at times. So um, it just goes to show if you, if you, if you just keep digging and digging, something's going to come up and you just have to always pay attention because um, you might miss it. Yeah, there's there's so much. I mean, as you, as you said, uh, Frank Wills definitely comes across as an introvert and there's so much digging that's gone on to uncover some of, some of these really interesting little stories and um, anecdotes and, and bits of information that you sprinkled throughout the text. Briefly, you, you mentioned um, Wills being born in Savannah, and, and then he he moves at a fairly young age um, to North Augusta in, in South Carolina. So how does he go from, from there to where he is in the early 70s, which is moving to DC and, and starting this, this role in, in security? So Frank, as I mentioned, drops out of high school. The, the childhood friends I spoke to you know, he, he didn't have any sort of, at least they, they think, any sort of learning disability. He just was unmotivated. But nevertheless, 
he drops out. Fortunately for Frank, he has a history teacher who also is a, a minister. And he, he takes a liking to Frank, and he tries to steer him as well as other classmates who he sees are on the fringe um, into this new federal program called the Job Corps. And this was recently created. It was part of Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty. And so Frank Wills applied, and miraculously, because there were a lot more applicants than there were spots available, um, was accepted into the program and was sent far away. I mean, for him, it was like going to another world. So Frank goes to Battle Creek, Michigan, which is um, hundreds of miles away. It's a totally different climate. Um, he's sent to a former army base, Fort Custer, and he's there bunking with with other kids who are about his age, probably in similar predicaments, but from all over the country. So you have kids who are from urban centers, you have kids from the rural South like him. And when they get there, um, you know, they're, they're basically, the point of the program is to try to steer these young wayward youth from a life of crime, you know? So, so there were really good intentions to it. The problem was, is that the program itself, it, it was it had mixed results in terms of its success. Some students were able to go on and tap into those uh, job skills, the life skills that they were given, and actually turn it into a promising career. You know where they would work on the factory lines, or or they would open up a small business. Um, but there were many who ended up dropping out, and it and when Nixon came into power, you know he promised to cut costs. And, and that was one of the programs he cut. He felt it wasn't meeting the, the goals of, of what they were set out to do. So it was basically kind of a, a job training program. Um, but it wasn't something where you would just go to for an hour, one day a week. I mean, he actually lived on site. Frank, being in Michigan, Beetle, um, not too far from the motor capital of the world, which is Detroit, um, he eventually gets a job on the factory line, and he works for the, the big, the big automakers. And he's um, he's not really enjoying it. Um, he's not making a lot of money um, at that time. Um, blacks were often getting paid less than whites. They were also getting less opportunities to move up, and they were usually given the jobs that were the least desirable and the most dangerous. But Frank was on the assembly line. He was uh, in charge, as he described it to Alex Haley, of installing the bumpers. And he didn't really like it. And someone had told him about a, uh, a job as a security guard at a department store, no training. You know, they just needed someone. And, and for whatever reason, he applied. And he seemed to like it, although he was held up when he tried to stop a shoplifter. But... Um, there were some friends who came in from DC of someone he knew and they were saying, you know, uh, there is this new industry, private security, and they're hiring like mad. Um, you know, you should come check it out. And he did. And he, he saw that there were job opportunities and it was also closer to home, a lot closer. So Frank Wills uh, moves from Michigan to Washington, DC, and he starts working for these private corporations, and eventually he lands at the General Security Services uh, Company. 
And that was the firm that was in charge of protecting the Watergate office building. So we already have outlined in detail the the specifics of what happens on the night that Frank discovers the uh, the Watergate break-in. What's the immediate response? Does he understand how big this is? What's what happens in terms of early contacts with local media? I mean, who who talks to him? Uh, what's what's the kind of immediate aftermath of, of the break-in for Frank himself? Well, you can't blame him. He had no idea what was going on. Um, the police officers who arrested the five suspects, four of whom were Cuban nationals, one of whom was a former CIA operative, they didn't know what was going on. No one knew. It, it was very strange. They arrested five men who were wearing suits, who had bills uh, with um, the serial numbers like in order. So each bill, you know, there's like 10 serial numbers on each bill and each one, you know, corresponded with the next one. So it, there were, and there, they had all of this um, equipment. At first they thought it was bomb making material, but someone from the FBI saw, said, no, this is for eavesdropping. You know, they had obviously cameras on them. They had film. So it was clear to the authorities within a few minutes, like they were there to spy. That was their intent. But the connection to Nixon was not made right away until they got to the holding cell. So they took the five people who were caught to uh, a local jail. Um, It was part of the, you know, the D.C. Metro Police and one of them says, I should probably read this because it's really funny. So Sergeant Leeper, who was the, um, the lead of the three officers who arrested these five suspects, um, he gets to the police station and um, one of the officers, I guess the officer who booked the five suspects says, hey, do you know who that one guy is that you locked up in there? And Paul Leeper says, which one? And the officer points to him and the man was was obviously because he wasn't one of the Cuban nationals, he stood out. Leeper says, yeah, his name is Ed Carter. And the uh, the officer who's in charge of the holding cell says, no, his name is James McCord. He's the director of security for the committee to reelect the president of the United States. So within just a few hours, there's already a connection to Nixon. Um, within 24 hours, the news of the break-in makes um, the television, the nightly news. And then within 48 hours, Wills's name has now been in print. Um, he was the, the security guard who's named as the one who detected the burglary. And so someone from the Washington Post comes by and tracks him down in his, his little one-room apartment. And he has no idea who she is. He's, he's like, what's going on? He's like, you know, she, you know she's trying to tries to tell him, hey, you know that break-in that you were involved with? Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 a big deal. And he's he's shocked. You know, I mean, Frank Wills. And so what I found really funny was when I asked people who knew Frank before the break-in, um, you know, what was what was your reaction? They were like, Frank Wills was involved in this national political scandal. <laughs> and of course, the the Democrats start saying this was Nixon, this was Nixon. They knew, but the national media was was not as um, 
was not finger pointing at that point, but it's, it still was, was obviously a bit skeptical. I mean, something was amiss, but it was just funny to hear their reaction. They just could not believe Frank Wills from North Augusta. I mean, how could this guy, they didn't even know what had happened to him. You know, they, they knew he left and, and went to job Corps, but they had no idea he was in DC. They had no idea he was in the security industry. Um, and so for those first few weeks, as we're, we're trying to make sense of what's happened with this break-in and Nixon's trying to cover it up. They're trying to connect the dots. It's an election year. We're just a few months away uh, from the big day, and it, it just doesn't stick. And it goes away until actually Nick, after Nixon's election. And then that's when the Watergate scandal starts to pick up. And, it, and then, of course, eventually, uh, within 22 months of the break-in, Nixon resigns. And it's at that point that Wills' fame peaks because now he's being seen not only as an American hero, but as the as the guy who's taken down the president of the United States. And so he really does get thrust into the spotlight. And he's he's very popular. Um, you know, he's viewed as a um, as a hero. Um, he's being asked uh, to you know to receive honorary awards and degrees, even though he doesn't have a high school diploma. He's asked to play himself in the movie All the President's Men. He hires an agent, but you know, as as everything, as all news stories, even a scandal like this one, the nation moves on, and and Will's unfortunately has nothing to fall back on, and and that's when the story really uh, unfortunately turns in a different direction for Frank. Yeah, and, and we'll get into some of the, the troubles that, that he runs into. Um, but I, I want to chat a little bit about his relationship to his agent, uh, Dorsey Evans Jr. Can you say a little bit more about Evans, um, his relationship with Wills and exactly how they try to capitalize on Wills' brief moment in, in the spotlight? Dorsey Evans was an up-and-coming attorney and he was... Um, referred to by a friend and wills again you know he doesn't have a support system he doesn't have an education a higher education at least and so his ability to scrutinize people's intentions you know especially given his personality too it's it's pretty minimal and so he was just happy someone was interested in wanting to help him and, and I think genuinely Dorsey Evans wanted to help Frank, but he also wanted to, to make a few bucks in the process. And so Dorsey Evans would arrange for these public speaking engagements. He's the one who arranged for Frank to play himself in All the President's Men, which was the movie based on the Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein bestseller. Um, Dorsey's the one who would try to keep Frank's name in the papers, you know, and so in the beginning, it seemed to work. There was a Frank Wills fan club. If you were interested, you would send your your money to the Frank Wills. Well, actually, it was the Dorsey Evans legal office. And so Evans and Wills had a had a had a deal. Everything that Frank earned, no matter whether or not Dorsey Evans was involved in the contract for that particular lecture or presentation or whatever it is, or even a fundraiser on Frank's behalf, he would collect 25% of it. And so what I was able to do was I figured out, because what happened was Frank left his job. And what I figured out was that if Frank had kept his job and if you calculate or factor in the cost of living increases over like a five-year period, his earnings would have far exceeded what he had earned 
as a as a celebrity because basically he would he would charge the media to interview him I and mean, he was he was trying to make as much money as he could but of course between Dorsey Evans's 25% take and and just there just weren't that many opportunities especially well-paying gigs um he he didn't make a whole lot and by the time it was over i mean he was broke and he was out of the security industry and he was he was damaged goods and he and he ends up leaving dc and and he goes back home empty-handed and he and he moves in with his mom dorsey evans did not really help Frank a whole lot. When there was an opportunity for Frank to receive a GED through the Urban League, which which had really genuine intentions. They wanted to get Frank a high school degree or the equivalent of it so he could get a job in the federal government. There was, you know, Jimmy Carter was in was in power and and there were some opportunities for Frank to get a a job you know maybe working as kind of a low level capital police officer uh, which would have been great for him it would have been a pension a steady paycheck but Dorsey Evans steered him away from that and so they go their separate ways Dorsey Evans ends up getting disbarred from the states that he's uh, trying cases in he's He's he has some legal issues throughout the remaining part of his life, um, and and so you know it, it wasn't a great relationship. As you say, Evans is is one of a number of people who who take advantage of of Frank, but uh, also we you do note that Frank to to some extent does seem to to enjoy and and perhaps even sometimes relish talking about his role. Well, Frank's human, and I think that Frank like. Most people, they do things that don't always make sense. And I, I think where, where things went awry for Frank is when he needed help, he, he didn't really have it except from his mom. It was the only person I genuinely think he could fully trust who really had his best interest at heart. So Frank didn't have anything, didn't seem to have a lot of friends. Um, he, he didn't have any sort of steady partner until much later on, and and that was the the woman I interviewed, but Frank Frank just didn't have any direction, and he he became very bitter in the end, and he he didn't trust anyone, and he had been burned many times. You know, people you would often hear would go up to Frank just because he was the Watergate hero. Uh, just because, you know, maybe they can find some juicy gossip and then they can spread it and they can call the newspapers. Uh, during these these anniversaries, when it was like the 10-year anniversary or the 15-year anniversary, all of the news media would, would find Frank and would be interested in his story and then they would all leave, you know. So I think Frank had justification for how he felt he was also treated very differently than the other Watergate characters. Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, Nixon, H.R. Alderman. I mean, all of these guys, they made millions off their, their place in, in, in history. They were offered rooms on um, business boards. They were, they were on the lecture circuit. Um, they wrote books. Those books were turned into movies. I mean, Gordon uh, Giddy, he just died. He was on Miami Vice, you know. Frank Wills didn't get any of these opportunities. And I think a big part of it had to do 
with race. Historically, when you have someone who's white and someone who's black and they're doing the exact same thing, almost every time the white person is going to get paid more, it's going to have more opportunities than the black person. Great example is baseball. Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. Many would argue Willie Mays was the better player. But when it came to promotional opportunities, you couldn't even compare it. I mean, Mickey Mantle had to say no. He just had so many. And he was making so much more than Willie Mays. And, and it was no different with Frank Wills. You know? And so that's, that's why Frank's life is, is really, it, it's sad, it's unfortunate, but it also provides us insight into what it's like to be black, to be poor, to be uneducated, and to realize that there are so many limitations and there are so many, they, 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 you lack opportunities. Um, and that's part of what this story is about. It's not just about Frank. And a good example of that is when we roll around to the 20th anniversary of Watergate, Frank finds himself back in the news, but for you know not the reasons that he would want charged with shoplifting and then he he becomes almost a, a core celeb for some african-american civil rights organizations as as an emblem for the the broader racial disparities and within the american carceral system frank wills by the early 1980s is i mean he's not doing too well financially and, and just in general Anyways, he goes into a, a shopping store. This is near his hometown. And he, according to him, he was going to pay for this pair of tennis shoes that he had put in his knapsack. According to the, the store manager, who, by the way, is black, said, no, he was walking out with those. And so they caught him and they called the police. And, and rightfully so. And the police arrested him. And... This was considered to be his second offense. His first offense was he was once caught two years or maybe three years earlier stealing a 98-cent ballpoint pen. And these shoes, by the way, cost, I think, $16, which in today's money, that's like $45. So it, it wasn't really a whole lot of the value of it wasn't much. But shockingly, Frank Wills is, um, is found guilty and is sentenced to a year in jail. You know, of course, that is when the news media wanted to to do their exposés on Frank. And of course, you know, he's he's even more resentful. He's like, you only seem to care about me when I get into trouble. And it's true. And so because there was so much information being discussed in the news cycle about this incident, you know, Watergate security guard gets caught shoplifting a pair of tennis shoes, says it was for his son. The civil rights organizations where he lives, as well as nationally, come to his defense. And um, in fact, the mayors of Newark and Orange, they come, they for whatever reason, and there's really no connection with Wills other than that they, they were originally from the South. So maybe that had something to do with it, or maybe they just wanted to get their, their names in paper. But nevertheless, um, they came down on the steps of the courthouse where Frank's uh, trial was, and um, they they said this is this is injustice. This is a symbol of black men being sentenced to harsher, harsh, having harsher sentences for for crimes uh, that normally they would be on parole for, if that. And 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 it, it was true. I mean, it was really true. Historically, the state of Georgia 
would sentence African-Americans to much longer sentences than their white counterparts. And so this case got appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, who refused to hear it. And at that point, that's when Frank had to go serve his sentence. Fortunately for him, he was only in jail for three weeks, and they let him go. So after all that, um, he had a quiet release. Again, another symbol of the injustice of the fact that this guy, who is clearly not a danger to society, is is being sentenced to a year in jail for stealing a pair of tennis shoes. And then in the midst of all that, Frank's life takes a a bit of a, a surreal turn um, with the arrival of, of Dick Gregory, African-American activist, celebrity, comedian, entertainer. So Frank suddenly finds himself in, in Gregory's employ. What exactly is, is Frank doing for Gregory? Um, how exactly does this odd pairing uh, come about? So because Frank's name is has been in the paper, it's how Alex Haley actually uh, found out about Frank Wills. I mean, he knew about Frank Wills before, but that's, that's when he decided that he was going to meet with him. Um, and Dick Gregory too. Uh, so Dick Gregory, as, as you mentioned, he's a famous comedian, actor, political activist. And at this point in the 1980s, is he's, he's financially doing very well. He owns this, this health supplement industry and it, it does, it's, it targets, um, African-Americans, particularly like middle-class African-Americans. And he's, he's looking for a spokesman and Frank Wills is, who he settles on and um, and he has all these grandiose dreams for him and Frank and Frank once again buys into it and I don't blame Frank I mean he has very few other options and this this uh, American icon comes to visit him and says hey you know let's let's get let's go into business together and so Frank joins him and in the beginning you know he's he's working for Gregory he doesn't have any sort of background by the way selling uh as a salesman selling products he's <laughs> that's not his forte um but at this point frank would take anything and so once he gets released uh from his sentence that's when he starts working for gregory and unfortunately like the dorsey evans episode it doesn't work out and it doesn't end well and in the end frank accuses gregory of not paying him Gregory says he did pay him. It's just that Frank squandered it. And so they go their separate ways. So it didn't it didn't work out well. This kind of theme of, of conflict and of the breakdown of, of relationships um, with different people is a theme throughout your book. And in some ways, the book is, is almost a tragedy in, in the way that it reads and Frank's efforts to, to deal with being thrust into the, the public spotlight. You talk about him being an being introvert character and maybe not being able to, to deal with um, what happens to him. You have this this great quote. So it's from NPR's Scott Simon um, reflecting on, on Will's passing uh, when, when he dies at the beginning of the 21st century. And he, he says the man who was in the right place at the right time for his country couldn't seem to find a right place to be after that for himself. Is that the the underlying theme that comes through in this book and that's something you were grappling with as you were writing this book you know this every every day guy like a kind of very ordinary guy being thrust into the situation and just for various reasons being being unable to to deal with the public attention good and bad that that came his way that quote sums up frank's life yeah when i came across that i i just 
I said, this is it. This is, if you were to say in one sentence, Frank's life, that's it. Um, the man who was in the right place at the right time, unfortunately couldn't find, find that rhythm again. And it's true. You know, Frank, um, he died young. Um, and I explain in the back of the book that the people who knew Frank before the break-in, they knew that this was not going to end well because he, he just was not the type of person who had the, the capacity to deal with this. I mean, most people I don't think do. And Frank is certainly not one who, who was, had any sort of preparation, let alone support, to deal with the, uh, the illusion of fame. As I say, in some ways, this, it reads as a, as a sad story, but we don't want listeners to, to go away uh, without re-emphasizing the important, albeit fairly small role that Frank plays in, in the Watergate scandal. So what do you think, reflecting on Frank's life, and, and again, you know, you describe him as, as a forgotten hero, how important is it for us to reflect on, on his, his role, not just in terms of Watergate, but also his experiences afterwards and what that might tell us about how publicly we choose to, to remember or, or forget characters in, in these, these national dramas? Well, Frank is an American hero. If it wasn't for him, the word Watergate would mean absolutely nothing to anyone who lives outside the Beltway. And it's very possible that we may not have known the extent of what Nixon was up to if it hadn't been for, for Frank Wills. He may not have followed the guidelines in, in terms of how to do his job you know, that very night. But if he hadn't made that call which I think a lot of security guards in his position, they just, they didn't have any honestly reason to. They, you know, they know that these things are going to complicate their lives. You know, they have to fill out reports. They have to probably, you know, be interviewed and go down the police station. They may not even get paid to do stuff like that. So there wasn't a lot of incentive at that moment for Frank to do what he did, but he did it and, and he should be recognized. In terms of the fame and the cautionary tale, nothing has changed. I mean, fame is is really self-destructive. I mean, whether you're Whitney Houston or Britney Spears, you know, or Elvis Presley, it's really not something anyone should seek because it just seems to, to backfire and it doesn't allow you to lead a normal life. And for Frank, I agree with his cousin when he says... I frankly wish it had not been him. I think he probably would have been alive today if it hadn't happened. And I agree. An, an incredible story and a, and a complex, um, often messy, but certainly important life. And as you say, Frank Wills, an American hero. Just finishing up a little bit of a, a different question. Listeners to, to New Books Network are often interested to know what's next um, in terms of our authors. So can you say a little bit more about the current project you're working on? Maybe give a bit of a preview of, of what your next book might be about. So to continue with my uh, theme, which which is really racism in America and, and how it impacts society. As I mentioned, I've written about Alex Haley, Frank Wills. And then in between, I had written about a uh, an African-American doctor who was based in St. Petersburg, Florida. And uh, in the 19, early 1960s, he helped integrate spring training. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting story. Um, so I'm going back to baseball with my fourth book. 
And this time, I'm going to write a, uh, a biography. Uh, it's the first one written about him, about a player named Ron LaFleur. And if you're of a certain age and you were a baseball fan in the late 1970s, you probably know who he is. But Ron LaFleur had a fascinating life, so fascinating. His story was turned into a, an autobiography and a movie, a television of the week movie. But Ron LaFleur is probably the only professional baseball player, maybe only the only professional athlete, who was ever recruited directly out of prison, maximum security prison. And he received a tryout with the Detroit Tigers. This guy was sentenced to prison for armed robbery. He was a heroin addict, but he was an incredible athlete. And in the 1970s, when he was in prison, and he's from Michigan, he was playing on all of the intramural teams. And there were people there in the prison who had connections on the outside. And they recognized that this guy was quite an athlete and, and maybe good enough to get a tryout with a football team or baseball team. He was that good. And so um, uh, eventually the Tigers send someone, their manager, Billy Martin at the time, uh, to take a look at Ron LaFleur and the tryout doesn't work because it's raining, but in any event, Ron LaFleur does get a tryout. He not only is offered a contract as soon as he gets released, but he makes the team and he becomes one of the best players in the league. And so it's incredible that this that this this young early 20-something who grew up like Frank, although under in different conditions, but a life of poverty. Um, he was a drug addict, never graduated high school. He was clearly going on a path to either spending the rest of his life incarcerated or or six feet below, you know. So he, he certainly wasn't heading in the right direction. But because of his innate talent, he was able to take advantage of it. And he became a, an incredible ball player. And his story was turned, like I said, into a movie. It was everyone knew him, and he was one of the fastest hitters. Um, you know, on the base pass, you know, and, and he was he was fun to watch. He had a great personality, but unfortunately, his past eventually catches up to him, and he has a hard time dealing with authority. Um, he has a hard time staying sober. Um, the partying, the fame gets to him, and within a few years, he's out of baseball. I mean, the the guy was at one point earning what would be today millions of dollars, and he blows it all. And it's sad, and he tries to to resurrect his career, and he, he's just not able to. So that's that's what I'm working on right now. And, and Ron is still alive, and so this is the first time I'm writing about someone who is alive, and I'm able to interview, which makes it really interesting and complicated at the same time. I think that's about all we've got time for today, Adam. So I just want to say thanks again for coming on, and it's been really great to to talk about your your new book and to talk about Frank Wills's life. Likewise, James. Thank you.